One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Glad to have you with me on the journey. Uh, we've made some headway now. We're, uh, we're fairly getting through the centuries. Uh, but it's better to be doing this together than leaving me to do it all on my own. So thanks for coming. Uh, before we get started, I need to thank, I want to thank all of the people, all of you who show your support for this podcast endeavour of Paul and mine uh, by subscribing to our patreon.com site. It's the financial contribution that comes in from Patreon that, that enables everything else so that the, the love letter to the British Isles and the love letter to the world are and always will be free. So if you're already on Patreon and you're making that contribution, thank you from the bottom of both of our hearts. If you're not a member, if you'd like to join and become part of the family, go to patreon.com, look for me by name, sign up, follow the instructions, part with a bit of cash, become a member. There's a weekly question and answer session that you can take part in, There's you can get in touch with one another, there's weekly vodcasts, competitions, the whole bit, and it's a little community of, well not little, it's an, an ever-growing community of like-minded souls, curious questioning types. Okay, now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off for the next destination in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A shining light, busy, bustling and famous throughout Christendom, an island where some of the world's finest Anglo-Saxon artworks were created. Square sails, prows carved with dragons and circular shields hung over the gunnels. One god versus Odin, Thor and a whole pantheon of idols. Slaughter and slavery were coming. When this formidable fighting force sailed into view, the world trembled. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode you pitched us into a ferocious battle. Which moment are we heading to this week? Morning Paul. Uh, This week we're travelling to the year 793 AD. It's a time of great change and shifting power blocks. When new ways of thinking and doing things were sweeping across the world... We're on an idyllic island where glorious artwork has been made, but unbeknownst to the residents, great harm is coming down the tracks fast. We're on Lindisfarne. Hi Paul, this is a good one. Well, they're all good, but it's Lindisfarne. It's one of the two holy isles uh, of, of, of Britain. Lindisfarne is somewhere I've been, I don't know, I've lost, I don't count, you know, double, double figures many times. And I love it when I've got that, that really intense physical connection to the place. And I, start, I don't even know why I first went to Lindisfarne. It probably was just a, an interesting sounding destination 
that was relatively close to somewhere I was living at the time that put it within reach. So it, we're, we're on Lindisfarne. As I say, it's one of the two holy isles. We've, we've already spoken about Iona. These are places that come back into my thinking and writing all the time. Both holy isles. Uh, obviously, Iona is on the west and Lindisfarne is on the east. It's off the Northumbrian coastline. And it, there's something quite, I don't know, romantic or or symmetrical, I don't know, about about having Britain bookended, in a way, between two holy isles. One where the sun sets and one where the sun rises. There's something nicely balanced about that. Before you get into any woohoo about it, there's just, there's just something very pleasing about that for me. However, the moment on Lindisfarne is, is a lot less than happy, uh, as will rapidly become apparent, and probably many people who've known about Lindisfarne, visited Lindisfarne, or read about Lindisfarne, will, will know it's, it's the coming of Vikings. Really, really the moment. I might as well just, you know, spoil, spoiler alert, the, the moment, this moment in the story of the world uh, in the love letter is the arrival of Vikings, really on the, in the consciousness of the world. Obviously, they had been in Scandinavia. People had been there for thousands of years, like everywhere else. But they, they emerge into, into the consciousness of, let's say, the Christian West from the end of the 8th century onwards. It's such a lovely place, though, Lindisfarne. I really should give it the credit that it's due. It's a tidal island. There's a causeway that connects it to the main twice a day at low tide. And there's a raised road built long ago that, that lets you go from the mainland to the island at low tide. Uh, so you've, it's one of those one of those places. Part of the fun of it is you've got to you've got to time your arrival <laughs> to Lindisfarne. You've got to go at the right time. And while you're there, you get cut off. You know, if you're there for the day, you, you, for part of the time, you've, you can't get off because the tide has come back in. And it's especially good if you stay over. You can stay over. There's B and Bs and guest houses and whatnot and there's something very satisfying about when all the day trippers leave you know they get in their cars or the buses go to catch the causeway before it's gone and then that's it it's like the place is drawn up pulled up the drawbridge so it's quite magical it's, it's very beautiful Northumbria the mainland Northumbrian coastline is stunning so different from the west the west is famously craggy and you know, mountainous and uh, cliffs and sea stacks and the islands. The Northumbrian or Northumberland, whichever way you want to call it, is quite different. Uh, there's the quality of light is altogether different. It's it's a magical landscape, and when you and when you look across, you can walk as well. Apart from the roadway, you can. There's a route that's a pilgrim's path to Lindisfarne that's that's marked by tall posts stuck in the sand. Uh, and again, if you go, obviously you've got to take care and pay attention to tide tables, but you can walk it uh, across. And Lindisfarne is very low-lying. Apart from there's a, there's a, little, there's a little hill on it uh, topped by a, a castle that was rebuilt in the 20th century. Edwin Lutyens, who designed the cenotaph in, in Whitehall, he also he designed the rebuild of this castle for the then uh, owner, who was the publisher of, uh, I think it was Country Life magazine, um, so it's flat, and as you walk, as you as you approach it, it, it just seems to be. It's, it's almost like a, it's like a mirage. It looks like it's just sort of a, a, an optical illusion. It's like it's, it's like floating. There's something ephemeral about it. Something fragile. So, but to, to get to the matter in hand, the the, the moment in question, 
uh, on Lindisfarne on uh, on the morning of the 8th of June, 793 AD, was noticed the arrival of ships, square-sailed ships coming from the east. This in itself was not uh, unusual because by 793, Lindisfarne and the holy community there, the religious community there, were well-known throughout Christendom. And obviously people will have heard of, for example, the, the Lindisfarne Gospels. No one's quite sure. Uh, the, the books that are called the Lindisfarne Gospels, they may have been partly the work of, of uh, Iona. They may partly have been the work of, or they were partly the work of uh, Bishop Edfrith on Lindisfarne. But the, the, the exact specifics of their creation are not quite certain, but they made the place famous. It was a, a bright shining light in the Christian uh, firmament and people were coming from all over. So the fact that ships were making their way to Lindisfarne would not have been any cause for alarm because people were coming from all over. Pilgrims were, were coming from all over. Were they famous for their artworks and stuff like that as well? Well, the, the, the Lindisfarne Gospels really... It's hard to know how they were received at the time of their creation, but they're still regarded as some of the finest uh, artworks created by anyone of any culture anywhere. Uh, you know, art historians accord the Lindisfarne Gospels, these illuminated manuscripts, the highest praise. You know, they 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 rank. You know, there's 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 nothing that's that's necessarily regarded as greater than them. They're 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 in that. Uh, territory of equal firsts the the significance of the art that's there in the Lindisfarne Gospels is as good as it gets any any art from any period uh, has its champions and people's own preferences will will push them in one direction or the other but art critics, art historians acknowledge and accord uh, that the Lindisfarne Gospels are just uh, pricelessly perfect a wonderful work of creation so that, so that would be monks. Yeah, know. they were created in the scriptorium. I mean, books at that time, obviously, before the before the printing press, books were created by hand, and they were very much created in religious uh, places because monks were literate. Monks could read and write, and so they would sit with an original book, an original manuscript, and then they would copy it by hand, laboriously. And in the case of the Lindisfarne Gospels. It's, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It's the Gospels uh, of the New Testament. And they were in the habit of illustrating them. Whole pages that were just given over to, to artistry. Uh, and the, the capital letter at the start of a, of a sentence, at the, at the start of a, a chapter, would be lavishly exaggerated. But it wasn't just that. You know, it, was a place of, it was a place of pilgrimage because of the sanctity, because of the, uh, because of the, the high regard in which the... the, the religious population were held. There weren't just priests, there was a lay community as well. So there were lay people who were servicing the the priests, looking after them, growing, farming, cleaning, whatever. So there there were um, civilians, if you like, as well as the priestly class. Hundreds of people. However, at this particular time, in this year, 793, a cloud had settled over Lindisfarne, metaphorically speaking. In April of that year, uh, so some months before the arrival of these ships, uh, a suicide, a man called Sitka, 
a significant figure, uh, a leader among his own people, had committed suicide. And five years before he killed himself, Sitka had killed the king of Northumbria, Elfwald. So he was a regicide and a suicide, which basically speaking, by the, by the standards of the day, made him, well, it put him beyond the pale. He was unclean in a spiritual sense. And yet, nonetheless, he had been brought to and buried, interred on Lindisfarne. And that had been a scandal. There had been a lot of murmurings about that ever having been allowed to take place. You know, he should have been, as far as a lot of people are concerned, he should have been buried in unconsecrated ground or, or whatever, but not, not of all places in the holiest of holies. And so there were dark rumours that there'd be a, we'll pay for this, was the talk of Lindisfarne and the surrounding area, that this that this character had been made physically part of Lindisfarne. It was like he... It was like a pollutant. He was, he was something toxic that had been introduced to the, to the very soil, to the very fabric of Lindisfarne. So people were upset. Then fast forward to June of that year and these ships arrive. And probably it would have been the custom when ships were spotted that no doubt some of the, some of the uh, religious community and, and others of the lay community probably went down onto the beach because the... the, the the, boat, the boats were just going to come onto the into the shallows and, and beach. So they'd probably going down to see who they were and to you know, welcome them because this would have been a, you know, pretty much in the run of the mill. Uh, but as the ships came closer, they noticed that their prows were carved with dragon heads, uh, fairly scary depictions of, of mythical creatures perhaps. Shields, round shields over the gunnels. So they would have, they would have, whether they were frightened or not, they would have noticed that there was something different. They weren't like merchant vessels, and they, they didn't necessarily look like the kind of vessels that were just bringing peace-loving Christian pilgrims. And the the boats duly beach, and out of them leap Vikings. Obviously, these were violent times. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxon world of 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 Northumberland people got ahead by being violent. You know, the law was administered at the point of the sword and, you know, there was little in the way of law and order except that it was exercised by powerful men and the men that they in turn commanded. However, what was piling out of the boats onto the beach at Lindisfarne was something of a, a different order. It's difficult to be sure exactly what happened next because no one survived. So... Uh, witnesses able to testify after the fact, are there none? It was slaughter there on the beach or wherever people were found and rounded up or enslavement Uh, many, many uncounted numbers uh, were taken away to lives unthinkable, lives unimaginable taken away to who knows where back to Scandinavia or traded on elsewhere because it was human trafficking and trading people at that time as there still is today why had the Vikings come? Well, uh, it's, it's probably, I've said this before, it's really useful to, to know that Viking is a verb, not a noun. It's something you do, not something you are. So the, the men piling out of those boats would not have called themselves Vikings. Other people elsewhere called them other things. Northmen, the Rus, the men who row. There were other names for these characters, but they, they came eventually to be called Vikings. But Viking was what they did which is to say that back in... These were Norwegian Vikings. They'd come from Norway, 
and they would plant their... They were farmers, like everybody else, and they would plant their crops in the spring, and then there was nothing to do through the summer months, really, or, or, or less to do. So traditionally they had developed a culture whereby they went a-viking, which is a word that means something like uh, an adventure in a boat. They would jump aboard their boats and just go and try and enrich themselves, go, go places and get stuff. So they, they arrive on Lindisfarne, and at that point it's difficult to know if their, if their impact had been felt elsewhere because they tended to kill people. And so the, if they had arrived and, and wiped out a little settlement, you know, mystery may have surrounded what had happened to those people. So in short, it's difficult to know exactly what happened when they arrived on Lindisfarne, but the, the people that weren't enslaved were killed, completely emptied. And they had been, the Vikings had been attracted because they knew enough. They had been around, they were travellers, wanderers, and they knew about Christianity. And conveniently they knew that it tended to be, you know, at, at one day of the week, everybody gathered in the one big building. And in that big building at all times of the week was all the good stuff, gold, because the books like the Lindisfarne Gospels or artworks generally, holy items, the stuff of the altar, uh, cups for the Eucharist, were gold, studied with precious jewels. And the Vikings knew that, so they looked for places of, of Christian settlement and they knew where to go to round up people and to go and get the wealth. So this was why they had come to, to Lindisfarne. They weren't, obviously, they were, un, they, were, they were amongst the last... They were the last people of, of Western Europe to accept or adopt Christianity. They were the end of the pagan tradition, so to speak. So they worshipped Odin and Thor and, and the rest of the pantheon of Norse gods. They came ashore and they did what they did and they left as quickly as they'd come with the sea turned red on the, on the beach and the, the slaughtered people lying all about. Word spread. Other incidents in other places have been described as pistol shots that echoed around the planet. Well, what happened on Lindisfarne travelled. Word of it, people came back, came across to the island and found what had happened and this was, this was significant. And very quickly it was being suggested that it was punishment for sins. Generally that God was upset. Everybody everybody knows, anybody reading the Old Testament knows that God gets upset with people from time to time and the consequences tend to be dire. So maybe he was just upset generally. But people pointed fingers at the grave of Sitka and said, that's because we've accepted, that's because that island accepted a suicide regicide. So word spreads all over. By that time, there's an, an individual, a, a great and significant man of the, of the Christian faith called Alcuin of York, he was from York originally, but by that time he was a teacher. Charlemagne, the great Charlemagne, Big Charlie, is literally what Charlemagne means. And he was the king of the Franks, the emperor of the Franks. He was interested in learning, literacy. And he had established a school, a university, a place of learning at Aachen, which is in a part of uh, a bit of territory that we would know as North Rhine-Westphalia. And so he had a, a great centre of learning there. And amongst others, Alcuin of York had been headhunted to like pull there, and he was teaching Charlemagne's kids. But Alcuin was was plugged into the to the eighth century internet, and uh, the you know the social media thereon was humming with what had happened at Lindisfarne. And his response to it was, "Is this the beginning of greater suffering? 
or the outcome of the sins of those who live there. It has not happened by chance, but is the sign of some great guilt. Okay, so that kind of that, that was that Alcuin of York's response is pretty typical. That there was you you've you've asked for this and you've jolly well got it. The shock of it didn't go away. The shock of it kept on rippling back and forth and was talked about for centuries to come. So that by by the early 12th century, there's a historian called Simeon of Durham. uh, And he wrote about Lindisfarne, and it, it still reads pretty fresh by the early 12th century. He said, They came to the church of Lindisfarne, laid everything waste with grievous plundering, trampled the holy places with polluted steps, dug up the altars and seized all the treasures of the holy church. They killed some of the brothers, took some away with them in fetters. Many they drove out naked and loaded with insults. Some they drowned in the sea. So that's how that's the, the way in which the events at Lindisfarne were still being lamented hundreds of years later. Was Christianity like firm all over the British Isles at that point? Well, it was back. Uh, the as we've, we've mentioned this before, that obviously Christianity became the accepted religion of the of the Roman Empire in the fourth century uh, under Constantine who founded, or in whose name Constantinople was founded and all the rest of it. And once once it became the religion of the Roman Empire, it, it, you know, that was it. It went viral and it was protected and there was no, you know, there was to be, well, it was, it was supposed to be safe to be a Christian. And so it spread. And it was safe as long as the Roman Empire was, was the Roman Empire. But with the fall of Rome in the West in the 5th century, Christianity, it was like a spinning plate on a cane you know you have to keep it spinning and it it started to the plate of Christianity started to wobble and in some places the plate of Christianity fell off and shattered altogether but it clung on this is critical it clung on in in certain remote places and it one of the places that it it kind of survived was in the west of Britain on the island of Ireland and out into the islands of of the west of Scotland there were like you know religious communities they were far enough away, they were always on the edge, and they were far enough away from everything that was happening with Rome and all the rest of it, that, that the Christianity held on. And the Christianity that then, re, if you think about it a bit like a plant that gets severely chopped back, that almost dies out, but, the, but there are roots and a few green shoots over in the west, and like ivy on a wall, when things quieten down a bit, with, with the persistence of the, of the brothers, it starts to spread again, like ivy. Its tendrils start to come across. And what comes into Iona under Columba in the 6th century, an Irish Celtic variant. It's not Roman Christianity. It's an Irish Celtic variation, which holds true to the basic truths and the basic story of Christianity, but it's got it's got little variations and kinks and idiosyncrasies that, that that hadn't had anything to do with the foundation of the church, you know, in Rome and in, in the Mediterranean. So, so that form of Christianity is what happens on Iona. Then a Northumbrian from the east, Oswald, who is heir to the throne of Northumbria, um, he was driven out of Northumbria in the aftermath of the death in battle of his uncle. King Edwin in 633 AD. So he's in that faction that, that have lost a war and he's, he, he runs for it and gets to 
Iona. And he, he either was Christian already or he receives or he's converted to Christianity on Iona. And he's there for a while, a couple of years at least. And when he returns, when the time is right and he goes back to Northumbria to reclaim his birthright, he takes a, a, a churchman from Iona with him called Aidan. And once he gets back and gets his own backside on the throne, he empowers Aidan from Iona to establish a monastery or a religious community on Lindisfarne. So that's how Lindisfarne gets its start. And it's a it's that Irish Celtic Christianity that, that Aidan brings with him. However, the that um, Roman Catholicism is still powerful elsewhere. And it it, it, it seeps back in as well uh, as a as an alternative and ultimately a stronger, more populous, more popular form. There's a synod, a, a, a gathering of, of religious figures, a conference uh, at Whitby in 664 AD. And when all the talkings said and done, they've opted for Roman Catholicism. The, the synod of Whitby, the majority view is that Britain should adopt, the British church should be the same as, as that of Rome. It didn't please everyone. Those that were on the losing side of that argument, rebels, uh, went back to Iona. And were kind of left in peace, really, to continue with their their own version of things. They had a different date. They had a different way of calculating the festival for Easter, things like that. There were just there were things about it that mattered a great deal to them, and they just weren't prepared to give them up. But uh, after the Synod of Whitby, it was Roman Catholicism on Lindisfarne. By far and away, the most significant, the most uh, name-checked individual there is Bishop Cuthbert. He was the leader of Lindisfarne, who's most famous. And by the time he died, there's miracles associated with his grave and all the rest of it. And when he died in 687, by that time, Lindisfarne was fully in line with Rome. So really, the, the future had happened, really. That, that, was the, that was the version of Christianity that really always thereafter had the, had the upper hand over most of the West. Were there still pagans in Britain, though, at, the, at this Yeah, time? there's backsliding all the time. Christianity... Uh, Christianity is definitely, in, and by then it's definitely in the ascendant. Uh, but Christianity was always more of a, always had most success in the main centres of population. Back in Europe, back in the classical world, it was always most successful in the cities where people are together. I mean, I've got my own personal suspicions. I mean, I, you know, I think in terms of you know the, the surveillance systems that are being put in place at the moment, the cameras and the social credit and all the rest of it. These things work a lot better if you can get everybody herded into cities. Because you know what? You can see everyone. If it's all about seeing people with cameras and, and having them pretty much under your, under your gaze all the time, it's easier if they're all in the cities. And it always tended to be out in the, out in the countryside. It was a bit harder. Because people, people were always inclined to, you know, have harken back to holy springs and uh, you know nature spirits and worshipping trees and worshipping mountains and have you know and having their own interpretations of events and that's why you get pagan and heathen it's the people of the heaths i.e. the people of the uncultivated wild ground and pagan is, is latin pagani the people of the countryside the people of the villages um, so christianity's there it's it's there it's never going away again it's entrenched by this point but there were always there was always a bit of backsliding would happen. Uh, you know, it took a long, long time to get Christianity bedded down. So no doubt, out in the out in the remote parts, out where the buses don't go, 
there were people who weren't going to church every Sunday necessarily. But the point, the point really is the moment, this moment, it matters hugely. As I say, history records the Vikings appearing as though through a trap door, out of nowhere, on Lindisfarne in 793. But it's because the, when they targeted there, people noticed. It's highly probable that other places in the British Isles had already had encounters with Vikings that had gone unrecorded because the people didn't matter. It wasn't a, a, a holy of holies. But Lindisfarne 793 goes down as the moment when the Vikings arrived, and that is why it is undeniably a moment in the story of the world. And after 793, once people were aware of them in that way, sure enough it turned out that the Vikings kept on coming every year in the summertime. When the weather was good and the sea was calm, over they came to, to see what they could get. And they came back to well, to Britain, to Ireland. Ireland was, was constantly under pressure from Viking arrivals. Uh, Muslim Spain. Spain was Muslim by that point. And they were bothered by the Vikings for the same reasons. Because there's no such thing as a Viking, really. It's something that the populations of Scandinavia did. It's not who they were. So you get a different modus operandi. The Norwegian Vikings, such as those... that, And it was Norwegian Vikings that came to Lindisfarne. But as a general rule, Norwegian Vikings travelled into the West. So they went to Orkney and Shetland, the far north of Scotland. And they went to Iceland. And they went to Greenland. And they, let's face it, they went to North America. They were hopscotching, leapfrogging from island to island across the top of the North Atlantic, and they got to North America. So that was the Norwegians. The Danish people coming out of Denmark, it was them in the decades and centuries to come that made life particularly miserable for the British, for the English especially. There were more people in England, more churches, more money. So the, the Danish, they targeted England as just being a richer cash cow than than other parts. So that was the that was the Danes. And then the Swedish Vikings, they went east almost exclusively. So they took their ships across the Baltic. Uh, they used the, the rivers coming out of Russia into the Baltic. They took their, their long boats. They rowed up those rivers. Uh, that's why it was the people in that part of the world that called them Rus, R-U-S, the men who row, and that in time became the root of Russia. Russia is named for the Swedish Vikings who, who appeared and had such an impact there. The Swedish Vikings, the Rus, probably got all the way to... Well, they certainly got all the way to the Middle East. They were in, they were in Constantinople. They were hoovering up Arabic silver uh, dirhams and taking them. We find them in graves back in Sweden. They had Chinese silk. They may have gone to China. They were such a stubborn and, and inventive race of travellers and mariners that... It, just absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So they may physically have gone to China, but they were connected to China. They were trading with China, possibly through intermediaries. So it's quite an event. The, the Once they arrive, the, the Vikings appear in the history books in 793, and then for the next four centuries at least, they write themselves indelibly into the story of the world. A land harried by cultured Islam to the south and by fierce Viking warriors to the north. A man of war, a conqueror, fighting to build a vast empire stretching from Scandinavia to the Adriatic, distilled from barbarian stock, king among Franks, 
he was crowned emperor and the Holy Roman Empire is reborn. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account as well. It's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And there's my YouTube channel, which is just called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and have them write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. The social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.